Dwarf Fortress is a construction and management simulation computer game. It has a large fan base and was one of the inspiring pieces for the game Minecraft. Tarn Adams is a creator of Dwarf Fortress and works on the game with his brother, Zach. Tarn, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. When a player first opens Dwarf Fortress for the first time, what is the experience? Well, they, uh, yeah, having downloaded it from the website as a zip file, <laughs> having uncompressed it into a folder on their computer, and they just click the, uh, click the start button, they get a text menu. Uh, after watching, I believe, there, yeah, there's a little, a little ASCII video they get to watch <laughs> of, uh, of dwarves hammering and uh, one of them being set alight by some kind of magma or demon or something. It's not exactly clear. And then it gives them a little text menu and lets them uh, create a world so that they can, uh, they can begin uh, um, exploring. What is the objective of Dwarf Fortress? Uh, well, we're, we're trying to, to remain objective free. <laughs> we're, uh, right. You're, you're just, uh, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a, we, we aspire to be a fantasy world simulator so that you could, uh, just kind of this, um, you know, pie in the sky stuff. You click a button, it makes a giant world, uh, that you can explore in any number of roles and just kind of live through a imaginary history until you get tired of it. And then you can start another one. Uh, that would be very different, but right now uh, it's all kind of milk toasty Tolkieny stuff with uh, uh, just the ability to play as a colony of dwarves uh, in this world that it, it generates. It does it does do a little bit of work generating the world though. So uh, a quote that is commonly associated with Dwarf Fortress is, "Dwarf Fortress is a game that you don't win but you always lose." Could you articulate this quote and? Talk about how it reflects in the gameplay as you are doing a certain type of task within Dwarf Fortress. Yeah, so yeah, it's it's that's actually the the motto, the official motto that we have in our, our help manual is "losing is fun," and uh, the whole idea is that you don't want to uh, you start a colony of dwarves at some point in the history of the world as it's ongoing. And you'd be digging into the side of a mountain and so on. And instead of having a uh, some sort of ultimate goal, like produce this much treasure or vanquish this opponent or whatever, that you're um, constantly saving and reloading, say, to, to eventually achieve your goal after you've made mistakes, uh, what we've got is you make your mistakes and you live with them or don't live. So, for instance, if you've been uh, channeling a... Uh, uh, sort of a, a, a water a waterway to uh, to fill a, uh, a cistern or something, and you make a mistake and flood your entire living quarters and uh, your dwarves uh, do not survive. Uh, then it just tells you that your settlement has uh, crumbled and has been abandoned, and that's the uh, that's the end of that game. But the world remains and the settlement remains, so you could. Uh, you can, it's just become a part of history now. If, if some dwarves did survive, say you abandoned your fort manually after that happened, uh, because there was no way to continue that fort uh, profitably, but you have a few dwarves left alive, then you can abandon it. And those dwarves would actually still remain in the world. They could come as immigrants to your next fortress, or you could meet them uh, wherever they've taken refuge if you play the uh, the kind of really incomplete small adventure mode we have, which is more of a RPG where you control one character and you can meet the dwarves from your old fortress or you can go explore the ruins of your um, the game you had just played 
and uh, we haven't done too much with it, but the, we, we're trying to incentivize that a little bit. And uh, but the central feature there is that we need people to play multiple games in the same world, or they're not going to see large swaths of the game. And does 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 the way that you you designed the user interaction in the gameplay does it reflect any philosophy about life that you have? <laughs> um, no, it's it's about uh, expedience. Uh, if that maybe that's a philosophy of life, right? Uh, that the if we're talking about the text interface and and that kind of stuff. Uh, no, I didn't the, mean the text interface. <laughs> I meant like the the actual gameplay, like you know the fact that you lose you always lose sort of like in real life well if that's your if that's your uh your worldview um (laughs) certainly certainly we've uh we've we've uh um put ourselves my brother and i into the game um in ways that we don't understand sometimes uh and every work by anybody reflects their biases and culture and so forth uh and that's that that lives within the game, and so if there's a certain uh, futility to it, a certain lack of competition, certain things like that that we don't really go in for too much ourselves, then uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's. I mean, it's it's going to be everywhere in there. I mean, okay. the uh, the amount of gems and stuff reflects personal interests, <laughs> the geology and so forth. So it's uh, um, everything in the game is like that. Interesting. Okay, we'll touch on that more in. In the future, but um, to give listeners a better idea of Dwarf Fortress, could you describe the visual aesthetic? Well, people say it's like the Matrix, right? It's like you see all this gobbledygook, and eventually it'll make sense to you. It's text, right? Now, if people have played a roguelike game, uh, one of the older ones, obviously, where it's still text text graphics, uh, they'll know what we're talking about. It's not different from NetHack or one of those games, except there's more information and more different sorts of things. So if you're playing your fortress and you're outside uh, where you, your dwarves all start before they start mining in, you'll see a bunch of greenish commas and... Uh, uh, apostrophes and quotes and so forth, which represent small vegetation. You might see a circle for a, a, a brown circle, uh, O, for instance, for a tree trunk. And you'll see your little dwarves, which are the uh, the IBM code page uh, 437, the, the smiley faces that came with that. <laughs> so we got to use those. It's not a typical uh, ASCII character, but it's there. And so we have little little smiley faces for dwarves running around. And they're all color-coded by profession. Uh, and uh, now the professions aren't fixed, like it's not classes in an RPG, it's just their current best skills that they have, and they can learn anything. Um, and then uh, if you were to press the the old roguelike greater than less than signs to page up and page down, you see a cross-section, a sort of horizontal cross-section, so if the ground is flat, you just see all the grass and tree trunks, but if you went up one, you'd start seeing tree branches, which are various lines and dashes and uh, percentage symbols and so forth that are brown. But depending on the season, you could have leaves and flowers and fruit uh, that are little colons and so forth of different colors. If you had an apple tree, you'd see little red colons on it. Um, and then those... Um, so you can, you can look up through that, or you can go down into the ground, which just starts black at first, uh, but then as you mine and explore, you'll start to see little walls and, and, and so forth, which are just, again, blocks. Uh, so it's, it's all um, 
It's all like graphical. Yeah, it's text, but it's used as a graphical representation rather than like a uh, Infocom adventure, like Zork or something that ha- that is words written out. I mean, there are words too, but it's not a text game in that sense. Right. So, Dwarf Fortress is a procedurally generated fantasy game. What does that mean? Well, procedural generated. I mean, there's a scale of 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 uh, scripted to non. Uh, to, to procedural generated content in in most games, right? Uh, like for instance, uh, artificial intelligence in even like a chess game or whatever, or a uh, a linear shooter is a procedural element. So games games have uh, almost all games have a procedural element, and then there's just like now, do you want to have people work on sculpted content, or do you want to let the computer make it? And we have. Uh, a lot of procedural content. The uh, the world map is generated not just with an altitude map, but with um, rainfall and temperature and so forth. And then it, it kind of intuits the biomes from those numbers. And we have the then it it can kind of flood fill out in the biomes and name jungles and things and put appropriate types of critters in them and uh, do an erosion simulation, have water flowing and so forth. And so that's as opposed to say uh, Skyrim's sort of sculpted game map, although even even that those games use uh, sometimes procedural stuff to do unimportant trees and so, so to forth, put, right? to put a finer point on this, could you give a concise definition for procedural generation versus scripted generation within a game? I don't think so uh, <laughs> because it's a it's a continuum, right? But okay. but but the the uh, procedural generation means that you don't just have a finished asset sitting in front of you. You're going to have the game create an asset in some way or another, uh, whether that's generating it with an an algorithm from just one number and then through a bunch of, of code, or whether you have some information about, say, how minerals, uh, their properties, and so forth. It can use quite a large data set and a random number generator to, to produce an outcome. So your your starting data may be scripted, but your outcome could be, would still be called procedurally generated at that point. So it's, it's a... It is a matter of degrees, so really, with to, everything. To, to exemplify this gradient, um, let's talk about how you generate a world in Dwarf Fortress. Like, the user sits down for the first time and is going to generate his world. What are the different parameters that get tweaked, and how are these how are these seeds to a larger uh, composite world that gets generated? So the first thing it does is load all of the text files off of off of the disk, and this is the scripted portion, right? It loads creature definitions with all of their names and tissues and frequencies of where they're going to occur, biomes and so forth. It loads all the mineral definitions, like where where does gypsum occur, what types of inclusions do we find sapphires and that kind of, or, or where is it included, uh, that kind of thing, right? So you have all this data. And then the uh, the game will generate additional data, <laughs> randomly create more creatures and so forth. So you have this whole mess of different uh, assets, objects, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and then the game has a routine it goes through for just creating a basic world map with, a, I was talking about before, altitude and, and so forth. And those parameters can be given to the game in, in a number of ways. You can... Uh, 
Yeah, and, and, the, and the user can specify this if they want, or they can just leave it up to the game. You can say, I want to have a pretty fine mesh with really variable uh, altitudes, and so you'll get kind of an, an arc, arc, a mountain archipelago type thing, right, with deep oceans and tall mountains all over the place. Or you can load in, if you want, you can load in your own altitude map. People have done the Earth, people have done Australia, or all kinds of different places, right? They've done New Zealand, obviously. Um, so uh, you can you can load in data sets at at certain points of the game, and, and so it, it it once it has that, it moves on to the next stage, which is to uh, do erosion. If you want, you can turn that part off too, uh, and do vegetation uh, placing uh, all of the different biomes, and then you've got a map, and at that point, it knows from the text files it's loaded. Uh, there are civilization text files that give parameters for uh, a, a typical human civilization, a typical dwarven civilization, and that. And for familiarity's sake, now, so it doesn't turn into a giant gray nano goo or whatever, we have elves and goblins and all that kind of thing. Um, and just a, a definition of civilizations for those, and then it places little starting civilizations um, around little starting settlements with. Uh, historical historically important people uh, and non-historical uh, really important populations so there's like 200 people in each of these settlements so some of them have names and some of them don't and then they start to spread out and uh, trade with each other fight with each other found new settlements have accidents in the temple where they accidentally tip over a statue and get cursed uh, all manner of things sure okay uh, so so let's scale back to the origin story of Dwarf Fortress. What was going on in your life when you started engineering Dwarf Fortress? So at that point, it would be uh, October 2002. I was in grad school at Stanford at doing mathematics. And uh, I had originally failed my qualifying exams and didn't know if I would still be there. I had passed them by 2002, but back in 2000, uh, when I was in a little bit of trouble there, I created a website because I've been writing games forever and just started posting the uh, development uh, kind of log of this horrifying 3D game that was the precursor to Dwarf Fortress called Slaves to Armok, God of Blood. And that was up up there online doing whatever with like 50 people. And so in October, uh, I had done a number of side projects by that time, and Dwarf Fortress was just going to be another side project that I worked on in grad school, threw up on the website, and continued with my math degree. And What, what, uh, in, yeah. what inspired you to create Dwarf Fortress? there there's kind of the the giant fantasy game track and then there's what dwarf fortress actually was when it started the the giant fantasy game track was just you know games like ultima starflight the roguelikes uh and our silly fantasy movies and like conan the barbarian and stuff right uh that that's just kind of been what my brother and i grew up with and we had uh uh been working on games like that since we were children, uh, just little fantasy games. We had our first random maps up when we were like 12, 13 years old uh, doing uh, this game called Drag Slay, which was eight characters at the time, which is all we had uh, for Dragon Slayer. <laughs> and uh, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was an interesting little game, had a lot of the elements of Dwarf Fortress in it, but we'd always been working on something like that, and Armok was the same way. Now, for, for Dwarf Fortress, the short game, that was inspired more by this, uh, this game called VGA Minor, uh, which was 
uh, a game where you kind of go down this little elevator shaft and dig out uh, a little map, almost like Dig Dug or something. You're just digging these little tunnels in this vertical cross-section and looking for treasure and so forth. And we're like, oh, what if we made a game with a mining colony that looked kind of like that? And so we made this thing called Mutant Miner, where you find, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle mutant mutagen canisters underground and start growing extra arms so you can mine faster and so forth. Very strange little thing, but we... Uh, that turned into a game about dwarves where you were going to make a fortress and then you were going to run a little adventure game to kind of get a high score afterward where you just kind of explore your ruined fortress and find like journals and stuff to get the kind of full point potential that you had developed during the colony. And what, what language is dwarf fortress written in? It's uh, a nasty C, C++ amalgam, the kind that develops when you learn object-oriented programming midstream. (laughs) So how did you end up using that mix of C and C++? Uh, Well, I I started without things like derived classes and so forth, and then found places where I'd want to use them. So for the items, for instance, uh, the items in the game, like everything from a wheelbarrow to a leaf that's fallen off a tree, is now part of a larger uh, kind of hierarchical class structure from just an item, but uh, things like the dwarves are not. Uh, they're all, every creature in the game is just one type of thing, so that's an example of a an older um, bit of code, and I'm, I'm not really sure, though, that I would always go with the hierarchy now. I kind of regret it for the items, and I'm sort of undoing it as I go. Uh, hmm. What's the trade-off there? Yeah, it becomes rigid, right? It's it's like if, if, if you have a item that is a weapon, say, then if you want to start using it for things that are not in its main vocation, like if you want to use a sword to pry open a door, if you want to use a sword to cut a piece of cheese, then everything that you kind of thought about for tools, you would have wanted to know for advance, and all the things start to become primitive again, and crawling back up the class tree. Now, this is just part of uh, you know my lack of well, it's a combination of my lack of expertise and um, what what word do they use? Elegance, <laughs> elegant programming, uh, and, and also my uh, but also the the design specs on this game are kind of um, large and well, hard so, to so think of a, in advance. So I think it's not just a personal failing. Is this a commentary on hierarchies, class hierarchies as a whole, or do you think there's something particular about the class hierarchy that you engineered incorrectly? Uh, that, that would be, um, difficult for me to answer because I'm not good at this. Uh, <laughs> so I think, I think there's, I mean, and you, but you always have 20-20 hindsight with decisions like that, right? Sure, absolutely. So, so I think that class hierarchies, if they're used properly, are probably a little more f- flexible and, uh, and you could spring around with your design a little bit more, but I'm not sure. I don't think that, I mean, the second you have a weapon class, you're saying that there's something special about weapons, and what I'm finding is that that's not true. That's just not how it should be. I think that there should be things... Now, I don't think that I don't think that the hierarchy itself that idea is bad, because I think there just needs to be more containment, and, and that's kind of what's happening with me with the sort of tool item I'm developing, is, is it, there needs to just be... There can be hierarchies within a larger container, that do things and are kind of allocated on the fly. But I need to be super, I just need to be super flexible because I need to be able to add a whole new 
function that I mean it's just going to live down at the base because everything can do everything if you're inventive enough with real objects it's terrible um, I mean in the real world or whatever you can you know it's it's like those the, the Martian movie where you start building crap out of other crap right uh, so it's, it's literally yeah yeah so it's it's uh, it's it's and and again this is just me inventing terrible computer science on the fly rather than being educated so it's it's not um, I don't think I have great observations here other than the fact that in game design you're always respecking and always having to iterate um, and that's probably true I mean that's true of a lot of different types of software I'm just not familiar with them so but, um, yeah. let's talk more about the collaborative engineering process because you work on this project together with your brother um, tell me how that relationship developed I mean you were originally working on this at Stanford uh, was your brother there also at the time or uh, no, we, we, we've, uh, I mean, we've been, we're, we've been writing games together since I was six years old. Uh, and it's, I mean, obviously those weren't great games, but, uh, it's always been, uh, he was a programmer originally until, uh, um, I was around 13 or 14. I mean, he still programs a little bit, but not, not on our projects. Uh, just, um, I kind of overtook him on C he never got into C. We, were, we learned basic together during the first like six or seven years. And uh, so we we kind of, uh, our relationship eventually became that we kind of co-design and then I just kind of go off and program stuff. Oh, okay. And then we go back and talk about it. So there's nothing, there's not like some kind of weird, you know, version control system we have where we work together and and have to do little commits at each other and stuff, stuff do, like that. Do you have any system of version control just for your personal sanity? No, uh, people find that unusual sometimes, and uh, I, I just don't. I have ba- I mean, I do have version control in the sense that I back up every day, and then I go back, and if I need something, I grab it off one of the old backups. It happens so so infrequently, though. Uh, I've pulled out old backups maybe um, twice in three years or something. That uh, just having feeling like I'm wearing thick gloves, which is a weird way to say it i don't know that that i don't like having it in a black box that i have to put it in and then put it out i mean i'm sure it's safer and there's all kind of analytics you can do and all kinds of useful things that i've been told about but i'm i'm just uh i i'm just used to working with the 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 code directly i don't know and so you use physical backups or you have like a dropbox or something uh i use uh burn to the DVD, place on the USB key, place on the external hard wow. drive, have in different locations. I don't like having it online. Uh, everything gets hacked these days, and I'm not getting the code out there. So Dwarf Fortress is not open source? No, I, I, do, I haven't figured out how to do that. I mean, I, I have an academic inclination, right, having, having worked there uh, for years and would prefer on some kind of ideal level to have all the code out there, but... There are a number of issues I don't I, that I, I wouldn't know how to deal with. I wouldn't know how to. It's a, and it's a problem with with games generally. Kind of is how do you deal with um, keeping the game on track, keeping the the kind of core uh, vision you have for the game, not in some kind of auteur sense, but just in basic playability and and themes and so forth. Uh, That's very interesting. The, so you're worried about the political process rather than like some sort of you know intellectual property kind of thing 
Oh, I was give, I was I was I was giving you a list. I was starting my list. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, everything everything's on the table. But but yeah, the uh, the the kind of community politics submissions issues are there. The how do I sustain this kind of just contribute money to us uh, thing that some people have made work uh, on open source, but with with forking and so forth with games, it gets to be. Um, trickier like like uh you know if, if a fork takes off because they make it you know um you kind of have a, a wider appeal just kind of clean up what i've got there now i mean that's great in the sense that more people would be able to enjoy the game but uh you know i don't know if i could continue eating if that happened right so it's it's a uh, it's difficult it's it's just and it's not there's no sure thing here right it's just assuming risk and i'd rather not assume the risk. So what in what part of what you're referring to here if the listeners don't know is that uh, your subsistence is based on donations. So basically people, you know, over time you put a PayPal button somewhere on your website and people just start contributing money because they were such huge fans of Dwarf Fortress and over time it's evolved into just your full-time project and uh, you subsist off donations. So what you're saying is that you're worried that if you open sourced it, there would be a risk that you know the development would change in such a way that it wouldn't be a a subsistence. the The development and the donations for the development would change in, in a way that wouldn't subsist your current lifestyle. Yeah, and it's not it's not like I've traced out a specific path right. through by which that would happen, but I think it's a reasonable oh, concern to have, and I yeah. think that people, when they ask me to open source the game, haven't considered it at all. Right, and you know it's it's so interesting because it sounds like you've really like fashioned a very particular lifestyle, and it sounds like the exactly the lifestyle that you want to be living. That's exactly right. That's why I quit mathematics. <laughs> this works for me a lot better, and uh, it's it's um, you know it's not a ton of money, but it's certainly uh, more money than a lot of independent people are making. So I'm thankful that we can continue going because I mean it has been rough out there for a lot of people uh, out there. You know, you work on a game for a year and then you release it and you make fifty dollars or one hundred fifty dollars, and that's it, right? Uh, so it's it's uh, it's we're, we've been very very fortunate that uh, people have kind of uh, picked up on it the way they have, and that we've had um, interest from media and like museum or whatever. That's just off the wall, but it's it's uh, you know we've been really lucky. So I'd love to understand a little bit better, like how do you spec out what what are the requirements for your lifestyle? How much money do you need to make? Do you just say okay, I need insurance, I need food, I need housing and then you say okay this is how much i need or do you also say i need to save some amount of money for the future well um the saving is a luxury uh that uh we have almost attained (laughs) um we're paying for uh, we just pay the rent buy buy the food and when and pay for web space and hosting of various kinds and uh we don't really have any money left over so uh we've we've uh we're just we've we've been treading water for uh five years now uh the 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 amount of money hasn't really gone up and i mean it's gone up a little bit but for the last five years we make anywhere from 40 to 60 thousand and split that among two people and 
take into consideration how the taxes work and how the healthcare works when you have to pay for it yourself and stuff. Uh, there's not a whole lot left over. That is some intense artistry. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm curious, like, what what would you do if some kind of black swan thing happened and you were all of a sudden in need of money? Is that like wings growing out of my back? I, I didn't actually see the movie. I just heard about the, <laughs> the strangest. I just That's heard the strangest parts of it. That's so funny. Black Swan is totally overloaded at this point. I meant in terms of like the, uh, you know, the Nassim Taleb wrote a book about the Black Swan, which is like you know these low probability, high impact events. You know, like uh, you lose your arm in a lawnmower accident, and like all of a sudden you have one arm and you have to deal with all the medical risks and stuff and that's something that's probably not entirely covered by insurance for example well certainly not the bronze level plan yeah do you just not not think about that well i mean you you uh bad things happen and we do have um without going too far into it we do have troubles in our lives like all people sure and we make do um, no, you don't. I mean, you, you think about as many eventualities as you can. I have a little bit of money that I save from my math job, and that's, you know, it's not like we're ignoring savings. You just can't do it if you don't have money, right? Sure. So uh, we have a little bit. Uh, it's a, a buffer that we could stretch out to a year if need be uh, to just, I mean, at change gears at that point. We'd have to think of some other alternative, but uh, we've been fortunate enough not to have had to do that. If some eventuality comes up and that money poof is gone, then we'll feel a little more nervous, but we'll keep going, I guess. You know, I bet the community would expand their contribution if something happened. Uh, it's possible. I mean, they've, they've certainly um, supported us this far. Uh, we don't really feel comfortable, like, trying to we never really ask for money except oh, like yeah. at the, at the bottom exactly of the newsletter why, or whatever. Yeah, that's exactly why they would be open to, to to. I mean, I'm assuming I don't know a ton about the community, but like you know, that's you know, if, if it's a, enough of a labor of love that's you know received well by the community that they are willing to support you to the degree of fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, you know, I think there's. It's, I don't know. Sounds like sounds like a, a type of community that's that ex, that uh, has expanded to fill the problem that you need to tread water over time. And if that need acutely increased for a brief moment, I don't know. Probably. Well, it's a, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's, it is, I mean, I don't know how long we're, we'll keep talking about this, but the, uh, but the, uh, the, uh, it's interesting, right? Because if you've, if you're, um, if you're posting and we do post all of our monthly totals and now that we're on, on Patreon, like the monthly totals just sits right there for Patreon, right? It's a public number. And so, you know, we we never really we we've seen it a little bit that that like you get up to a number where people feel like ah oh, you're doing well enough, and then maybe they don't contribute right, and we yeah. have bad months and then it yo-yos up and then people see it yo-yo up and they're like ah and then it goes back down right and and so it it is a weird um, dynamic but at the same time uh, some people give to projects that are more successful right and money just kind of begets money itself you mm. see it with some of the ballooning patreons right the most successful ones financially uh can make even more money because there's there's some that that that's kind of some kind of stamp of approval on the content itself uh, so it, it's yeah and 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 not having a business degree or any business know-how and just having a little bit of experience that so these are my observations and if they're completely wrong you know that's to be expected 
uh, we're not good at this. Let's return to a discussion of engineering. Um, can you give me like give me an idea of the design challenges around building a procedurally generated game? Yeah, so <laughs> it's it's um, it you you have to I think you have to support um, kind of I mean all all game development is is really heavy into iterative development and so forth. You just have to constantly be able to change things and adjust your design goals because people will have observations about how badly the game is playing and so forth. Things will happen, but I think I think that's compounded when. Uh, you have the game itself fighting with you, <laughs> right? It's it's uh, things will come out of procedural generation that you didn't anticipate, and sometimes you want to keep them, <laughs> and sometimes you want to you foster their growth, right? Because you're just letting the computer kind of go, and it's sort of storyboarding for you sometimes when you see see uh, you know how the world looks or, or you you see a river flowing and you start thinking about tributaries differently and you're like oh we really need to kind of emphasize that the game knows what a watershed is and then we go in and program that right if and it wasn't even in the original uh, kind of design process and so it's it's uh, you you always will have I mean I get the impression that every every project of any kind in programming has a kind of giant periphery of goals that will never be finished <laughs> and that it's always expanding outward. There's always things you can do, always things you can change. Um, that, that, that it's, it, I think that's, that's just um, exacerbated in, in this situation. Then there's the, uh, just the, the, the art of doing procedural generation itself as a, as a kind of isolated design challenge without thinking of the larger game, but just, just making a a procedure that does what you want it to do without being too uncontrolled and without being too narrow that you might as well have scripted it. So, um, so you mentioned the changing nature of the goals, the periphery of your goals. How have those changed over time? Oh, for Dwarf Fortress, <laughs> I mean, we we have. I mean, you have you have in your head with with Dwarf Fortress because you've consumed so many narratives and so much media uh, that's related to fantasy, right? Um, I mean, uh, uh, this is just the general person, you, whoever that is. Um, that you, you have, I mean, having a vision for Dwarf Fortress is not actually that hard to do, right? You just have this kind of, you know, people are going to go off and do stuff and there's going to be all these great stories going on in the world and all that kind of thing. And so you have, you have a... You can't say that the game has really gotten outside of that periphery because that periphery is so nebulous and ill-formed that you're not doing anything useful by having it. But it's it's within within that within these these boundaries when you when you start to expand uh, every every little feature of the game has made us think of of three or four other things that we can do. So it's the game started with our kind of uh, RPG. Type thing we were thinking originally with the, with like the Dragslan Armog games that you would roam the world and have like these kind of not quite scripted quest interactions, but there'd be these certain things you could do, and that the uh, it would just be fun to have other little patrols and armies run around and stuff, right? But I just spent the last nine months adding dance forms and poetic forms and uh, dwarves in discovering the Pythagorean theorem and stuff. So it's uh. it's uh, it, it it just goes beyond that when you when you uh, 
when you every everything touches on so many interesting um, uh, avenues of exploration that it, it's uh, the game has changed completely from what we first thought it would and, be. And so, so I'd love to talk some more about the creative process because I feel like when you're working on a self-directed project, there are some days where you, well, in my personal experience, you wake up and you're like. Uh, I don't know what to work on or you know like I don't know how to prioritize my stuff or I just don't want to work on something so how do you maintain motivation or 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 organize your tasks Yeah that that I think if I if I had to say that I actually have a a, a talent that's made me um successful in this it appears to be that I don't have a motivation problem, <laughs> and I don't uh, have, I, and I, I'm actually good at organizing things. So that that is actually kind of striking into the the heart of 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 it for 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 Dwarf Fortress and kind of what what distinguishes us up, uh, maybe. Because I have when people ask me that, I don't really know what to say in terms of motivation. I mean, we're writing it because we're we're completely invested in it. There's no question about that. And when I wake up in the morning, that's what I want to do. Um, do you have any like task management tools? Oh yeah. Now, now when you get to specifics, now now that's with organization. That's a, that's a different matter. And there and it is important to because uh, I do have I had trouble, especially earlier on, about going off on tangents and still do. I did just say I added the Pythagorean theorem to the game, and that doesn't really <laughs> that's not really good. But uh, it, it's it's yeah. So you need we we kind of organize. Um, uh, so our release schedule is about once a year, something like that, for major releases, and then we do a series of bug fix and tweak releases after that. And it ends up being about a year, even though we we'd rather it be like two months or something, right? We plan a little arc of core things that we'd like to do to the game to make the game uh, better in a specific way. For this release, it was we want to add taverns to fortresses so that dwarves can uh, go off and have little personal lives of their own, and you can have visitors come, and it kind of ties you into the world as kind of a stepping stone to get into sort of larger diplomacy and issues like that. So we have this... um, and also to use musical instruments, which have been in the game for like seven years, and no one's been able to play them. Uh, so we have th- that as a goal, and we work toward that, and then we just kind of let things mushroom a little bit. So it's, it it turned into taverns and temples and libraries, and then that, that kind of had some... And also the art stuff that came out of allowing musical instruments to be played. It's like, well, what are they playing on the instruments? So we have... Uh, but we don't use any... any um, specific tools. I've written things in the past where I try and visualize the whole development notes. There's like uh, six or seven thousand lines now of just development features we'd like to add that have kind of just been added over ten years or whatever. Hmm. And I've I've put those into little nodes and have the little the little uh, uh, visualizer that you can kind of make links between them and categorize them. But that tends to not, it tends to be more trouble to maintain that than it's worth to even have it around. And um, it's just not, I, I, I always play around with that. It helps me think about what future uh, features might be grouped together so that I can kind of use my time better. Ah. But because uh, it, 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 it is about that, that periphery of development is a structured and organized thing for as much time as you want to work on it to make it structured and organized right but you just have this list of crap at first but then you can group it and you can you can work intelligently on that but you can also paralyze yourself and so i i tend not to i mean i have 
uh, more more horror stories from people about over designing than under designing. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. Because you can because you can always iterate, right? You can always make a design. Maybe you didn't make. Maybe there. Are, I mean, there are definitely. And of course, this is from my perspective as the non-programmer that uh, you know there there are definitely things that you can design better and that you could have thought about better, like the item classes and all that kind of thing. Uh, but people like to make white papers and and very specific design documents before they even get started, and the projects just don't get off the ground a lot of times. And it's it's important. I mean, I tell people to get a game loop up. You know, try and get it up in one day. Just get going on, even just moving something around so you can see and work yeah. with something. It's like a lump of clay, and then you can, you know, you can get it get it shaped up as you go, and you can see your results. And that's great for motivation. I mean, it's and when we're talking about motivation, uh, if you can actually see the fruits of your labor, <laughs> you know, hour by hour, you know, even if you're doing a few extra compiles or something, uh, just to see. Uh, what you're doing and to interact with it and give yourself ideas just by having it there, um, then it, it will it will help you make a variety of good decisions, um, whether it's with uh, usability or just a whole new idea. Yeah, way so of I think things. I think that's so true, and I think that's like something that it's easy to get hung up on if you're like if you're a, a burgeoning developer and you're trying to figure out what project to build or what you want to architect. I think a really important thing for all the projects that I've worked on is figure out a way to structure your project so that you get uh, positive feedback like quickly and in small bursts because it keeps you going. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's uh, it's not. I mean, it's it's an it's enough. Uh, like I was saying, for us to to just kind of work on the games, and that's that's something. But if you if you want to. You know, if you if you want to have a, a a job where you're like laughing all the time and <laughs> seeing all kinds right. of absurd things, you know, it's it's really you know it's it's it does it does double the motivation really. So the um, creator of Minecraft, Notch Pearson, was inspired by Dwarf Fortress. What did Notch take away from Dwarf Fortress? Well, first of to be fair, Infiniminer is the the king of Notch inspiration, right? So we need to do a shout out to Zachtronics um, first. Uh, and then uh, having, I, I really only have passing familiarity with Minecraft. I know there was like lava and water and stuff, and maybe that was kind of DF inspired. And I don't know how much crafting. I mean, Minecraft was there was Infiniminer. I don't know how much crafting there was in Infiniminer, <laughs> but people building things and making a little house for themselves. I mean, that's kind of dwarfy. I don't know if that was in the original. Uh, so it's it's hard for it's it's it is actually a hard question for me to answer. Um, since I'm not that familiar with it, hmm. uh, did, you, you, did you ever play Minecraft? No. Fascinating. Do you play other games? Oh yeah. I I, I mean I, it's it, like every game developer, not so much now. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's it's often remarked upon that we don't we don't have like a lot of time to <laughs> to do to to play other games, but we we do try and play other games and. Uh, it, it's um, yeah. I mean, I'll, I, I play things uh, occasionally that come out. I mean, I played the Soulsy games, and uh, I played um, uh, some some random independent games that that I came across. Um, when you play you know. other games, are you enjoying it, or are you more hyper analytical? And you're like, how? What can I take away from this to apply to Dwarf Fortress? No, I don't. I yeah, no, I try and enjoy myself. <laughs> I mean, you can't help it sometimes, right? If you've been like, if you're a musician and you've been 
playing for 30 years and then you hear a song, you're going to hear it differently from other people. But uh, at the same time, I still think games are fun. So, uh, and, and really, when I play a game, I'm trying to kind of unwind and have downtime uh, the same way as when I'm reading a book or something. So I, I, uh, I, do, I do enjoy it if, if it's the kind of game I like or whatever. So uh, uh, no, not a lot of picking. I mean, I, I save my picking for like if, if people are talking about a game, I'll go watch a YouTube video of it for like five minutes or something, and you can kind of pick out the interesting ideas from that. You don't really have to play it. And you can consume you can consume design ideas a lot faster that way. You don't have to like install the game or fire it up or anything. Oh yeah, it's definitely true. Um, so, in, but in Minecraft, one of the people one of the things that people like about Minecraft is that uh, people can build these very complex systems. Like I've seen these videos on YouTube where people will build like a calculator or just build like crazy stuff that you would never expect. Do people do this in Dwarf Fortress? Have you seen people build constructs that you would never have expected? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I wasn't, you know, like a big, like, builder of AM radios as a child and didn't really think about logic gates and don't know any of that stuff, really. So uh, when people constructed a water computer <laughs> in Dwarf Fortress with 75,000 mechanisms or whatever that uh, could perform... Uh, calculations and could have uh, uh, drawbridges coming down to be like a seven-segment display and displaying the answer like a calculator. <laughs> that was amazing to me. And then I, I think someone implement, implemented Conway's life in Dwarf Fortress. Wow. With a display and everything. Uh, and that's that is mind-boggling to me. Um, and uh, you know, I know those things have been done in Minecraft too. It's like any. Any game that has enough little mechanisms allows you to build a, a, a computer within it. So, um, and people do that now that we have computers that are strong enough to run kind of a nested <laughs> processor like that. Um, it's it's uh, it, it can be done in any game that allows it to happen. So, uh, I think I think the that the uh, because Dwarf Fortress has is is kind of unoptimized and also has a lot of stuff going on. I think the Minecraft computers are probably better. And you can also mod the game to do uh, like a make a little mechanism that does a lot of the processing within one little tile uh, to kind of uh, make a. Uh, you make it mod so Minecraft or Dwarf Fortress? A, a Minecraft, because okay. because uh, uh, Dwarf Fortress doesn't support that that level of modding, so. Uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're certainly. I think it's better in the Minecraft environment, and uh, though we'll probably do some things with little gearboxes and stuff later, who knows? It's it's really um, hard to say what direction we'll go. So you studied mathematics. Did your approach, uh, or did your study of complex math it, at Stanford, did that affect how you have developed Dwarf Fortress? I think that. Having worked on uh, in mathematics, especially, well, it would have been different, but but for me, it was a very visual field, uh, geometric measure theory, where you think about things and rotate them in your head and all that kind of stuff. I did, I certainly did develop a a, a kind of visual capacity that I think has helped me a lot, uh, and also just just technically, it's more the stuff that you learn earlier, like linear algebra. Uh, linear algebra is incredibly useful for computer games, whether you're doing graphics or not. I mean, obviously it comes up when you're doing graphics with the matrices and so forth. 
but even without that, you still use the same principles to you know rotate things simply and and uh, and also uh, I mean I've used partial differential equations in in limited capacity to to solve certain problems. Um, you studied Banach spaces, right? Uh, that was part of it, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, the, my thesis was written about flat chains and Bonox spaces. Um, my stepdad and... did a lot of work in Bonox spaces. <laughs> yeah, I never, I mean, it was right right when I went to, uh, started my postdoc is when I was kind of, would have been meeting all the cool functional analysis people and also when I stopped caring <laughs> and stopped doing research. What made so you stop was, caring? I wanted to do Dwarf Fortress. Interesting. Uh, it was, it was... One of those things where I'm not a mathematical genius by any stretch of the imagination, and what there's does that still even mean? Uh, it means that you're better than I am at math. Uh, <laughs> there are there are people that are very amazing. Now I think I mean I don't know a lot of that is work, right? Um, and and genius isn't just a free lunch. There's a lot of work uh, that makes you better at it, but. I my my gears just don't run that fast in my head. I know that I'm not like top tier, right? And uh, but there's a place for people like me in mathematics if you work your ass off. And so I could have been a workman-like third-tier mathematician, and that's not a bad thing. But that's for people that love math uh, more than they love computer games. <laughs> I like math, but I don't love math enough to do that. And uh, especially given that I had a, another option. And so I, computer games was a natural choice for me. I've been doing math and computer games my whole life, and there was just a, uh, I wasn't, if I, if I were really, really, really naturally gifted, I could probably still be doing both. Hmm. I, uh, not at the top level, but I could have been continuing to do math research and papers and so forth while still doing this. Uh, but Dwarf Fortress would have been lesser because of it, and the math would have been lesser because of it. I, I kind of like that I focused on one thing, and I think I picked the right thing for me. So, uh, what is the demographic of your fan base? Oh, uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's, it's hard to say when you don't collect data. <laughs> uh, the people I've met have generally been people in computer fields. Uh, generally, uh, and and just inherited all the demographics from that, I guess. Um, so more more men than women, more white than not, but not not so much that you that that it's uh, like a hundred percent. It's it's and and there are there you know it's 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 a pretty diverse crowd of people that play the game. Well, what kinds of advice would you give to developers who might be listening to this and want to create their own game? Uh, I I mean it really it, it it does depend on their background to some extent. Uh, I mean I I think uh, they should listen to the advice that my senior advisor gave me in mathematics, which is that if you if you you have to love it to do it. Um, people don't enjoy game development if they don't. I mean if you don't if you if you don't want to do anything else. Uh, people are washing. People wash out of game development at a pretty high rate. I don't know how it is for other computer jobs, but I think we were losing something like more than fifty percent after ten years. Just go do something else because it's uh, if you're working for a large company, um, it's kind of a oftentimes a miserable job. And why people, is that? Uh, crunch and um, you know shitty shitty hours, shitty conditions. People can replace you with a twenty year old that thinks games are great. Um, a lot of reasons. 
uh, I, and I don't, I don't know. I think it probably applies more to games than other tech jobs uh, because there is this kind of fan um, uh, love of the the game. Yeah, there's this saying in about academia that's like the the rewards in academia. Uh, or I'm sorry, it's the competition in academia is so fierce because the rewards are so small. Uh, I think that might apply to video game development also. Is that like fighting over scraps or something? Well, kind <laughs> I, of, I don't know. Kind yeah, I don't, of, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's it's uh, um, because if you think about it, if there's like this endless chain of uh, you know young kids who are really good programmers and will come in and take a job for sixty, seventy thousand dollars, uh, then like it, it, it uh it makes for some intense competition. Yeah, I mean, of course sixty or seventy thousand dollars isn't scraps either. Uh so it's Well for um, for developer jobs though. For like if you're a crack developer. Yeah, well I mean yeah, you you uh you you narrow the the field there. Um, how, how does how does indie game engineering compare to these big corporate places? Because I, th- I, th- I think the kind of game development that, that you and I are talking about right now is these giant corporation uh, sweatshop type of jobs. But uh, how how does that compare to indie game engineering? Uh, so I mean, I, my my basis for comparison is limited, as since I haven't worked in anything but my own garage essentially. But uh, it, you you have. Um, uh, with a with a smaller team and your own direction or your own like someone who's probably your close friend directing you, uh, you have more more freedom and uh, you also have to be able to respond to a greater variety of outside stimulus, right? So it's uh, uh, you're responsible for more things. You have to. I mean, someone's got to run the business side, and if you're doing I mean, it's, it it could be your programmer or artist who also does the business stuff, right? I mean, it depends on how small your your a group of people we're talking about. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, but uh, I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't speak. I I I'd, I'd, I'd hesitate to speak hmm. to the differences too much because I haven't worked in those environments. I've I've heard the bad stories, right, uh, about large companies, but I I mean. The, the people I've heard good stories from all seem kind of starry-eyed to me, but but I don't, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to really. Sure. So, um, what's what is the like the funniest story that has occurred in the Dwarf Fortress community? <laughs> uh, I can't even keep track anymore because they post stories faster than I can read them. But um, I mean, there's there's the, the 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 most influential one was was probably the 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 boat murdered story that came out of something awful uh, back in 2007 when we were starting, uh, which was just a, a kind of a kind of epic story about the the fall of one fortress to uh, to elephants, and then the <laughs> the elephant was the original uh, dwarf fortress um, kind of monster. Uh, uh, to beat all monsters, just because elephants are large, right? And so the the game the game the game takes it from there. They're large. They're they uh, you know they can they can they can kill a dwarf pretty easily, and uh, you set them on fire, and then you got real problems, right? So uh, it's it's uh, it, but I mean for me personally, I always have the uh, 
the bug reports <laughs> to go through. <laughs> and uh, I mean, there was there was the I mean, I, 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 I when you get asked this question too many times, you start to tell, tell the same story too often. Right. So, I mean, my my favorite one is still the uh, the executioner who's uh, whose arms were broken. And so. The, he still had a job to do, right? And in, in, in Dwarf Fortress, they ha- they hammer people, right? They use a hammer to hammer hammer people. It's kind of like reforging the menu uh, when they're being punished. And this for you know obviously serious offenses. And so so the uh, the dwarf that had this job, let's go execute the criminal or whatever with a hammer. Uh, he didn't have any arms, so he couldn't hold the hammer. But he was like, I still have to go do this job. And so he went to the execute the 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 uh, the criminal the condemned person and said okay now i'm going to do the execute code and the execute code which assumes that he's holding a hammer says attack <laughs> attack with your preferred weapon right and uh so he started biting <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was just it was grotesque, and he bit the guy. And because because we have these problems with bite attacks and so forth that, that made carp, for instance, the the next most feared creature after elephants, because they would drag dwarves in the river. Because a carp is a large fish. Now it's not known for having giant teeth and so forth, but it's still big. So I mean, when they're full grown, so so they don't they exit will, the water, right? Yeah, but they can pull dwarves into the river okay. and and then chew them. Um, but so what happened is the dwarf, you know, not a small creature itself. I mean, dwarves are are, are short and stocky, but they're still, you know, you know, Gimli probably weighs, you know, two fifty or something, right? And so uh, they, he bit the guy's arm off, and because it was going by size, they got big dwarfy mouths, and he bit the guy's arm off, and then then he had the the condemned criminals arm in his mouth and he the executioner didn't go on to attack other people there wasn't another execution and the only code that says hey check what you have in your mouth <laughs> is before you bite someone again because it was it was just for a kind of a cinematic thing so like if a, if a dragon bit your arm off then it goes to attack you again it's like the dragon spits the arm out of its mouth and keeps going right yeah and so so this this dwarf never had cause to spit the arm out of his mouth Uh-oh. and so he carried it around in his mouth for years and because it was an inventory item we had um uh code to prevent like like it's frustrating if you if you're trying to uh um kind of uh, make your workflow more efficient in your fortress. It's frustrating if you're if a dwarf is like carrying food. So that means they got to the point where they're carrying the food but then just rots in his hands or something because there was a timer on it. Right. And so so we stopped doing that. We're like if you're carrying the object, obviously they've been taking care of it. Just stop the rot, the rot counters, right? And so there was no rot counter on this arm. So it, it remained perfectly preserved in the dwarf's mouth for for a couple years. And then so I get this bug report. <laughs> it's just like this executioner is carrying around this arm in his mouth. <laughs> it's like, okay, so you have to go and put your Sherlock Holmes hat on and figure out what happened. And we, you know, we got through it. Oh, that's funny. Um, okay, so I guess to begin to close off, um, are there any games that you wish you had time to create? Like, any, do you have ideas for games that you want to create in the future? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's... Coming up with ideas for games is is like, I mean that's a hobby for every developer. And they sure. want to, you know, they want to, and, and non-developers too, right? It's like how people get started. Sometimes they're like, I've got an idea for a game, and yeah, so we got, um, I've got a folder with hundreds of dead projects, little side projects. We try and work on side projects every day for a little hours, a few hours in the evening or whatever, 
um, you, you know, uh, different genres. I mean, you can imagine Dwarf Fortress in space, for example, and and you know, some people have tried different angles on that, but it's such a wide open thing that you know you could have all kinds of interesting ideas how that can play out, and um, you know, this and that, other things. I don't I don't like talking about specific ideas too much. It tends to be a bad idea. Uh, yeah, you know, hyping just... hyping people up in vaporware and all that kind of well, thing. Well, yeah, you know, I, I had a conversation with Derek Sivers yesterday, and one of the things that he talks about is you should keep ideas to yourself. Like keep until they're executed. Like keep them to yourself because it's it's inhibitory. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I I don't know. Uh, inhibitory. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, you're talking I about something different. You're talking about uh, vaporware. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons not to not to get too far into it, but I think there's also a lot of reasons that you'd want to have a nice open discussion about them um, if they're not something that that people expect out of you. Like yeah. like if you're just shooting the shit, which which would be something that would be fun to do, but in the in in the current context, I, I don't feel comfortable like laying out what I've been doing on side projects because I've had a terrible. Track record now, like I had released just a bunch of crap, but I had released like fourteen or fifteen things or whatever mm. uh, on Bay Twelve Games, and then Dwarf Fortress comes out, starts to eat a much more significant chunk of my time now that I have to you know keep keep it going, and uh, I have started and failed to complete many side projects, so I'd hate to to kind of get uh, to pick one and say that that's the one I'm working on because I'm I'm probably going to change gears. Um, on it and it's it's just one of those one of those things sure all right well uh tarn adams thanks for coming out to software engineering daily it's been fantastic talking to you i'm uh very fascinated and proud of the work that you're doing with dwarf fortress uh thanks i hope to keep it going for another several decades (laughs) we'll see how it goes (laughs) 